today on Doomed! Remember all those people, whether it be in the medical field, in the conspiratorial field, in the anti-vaxxer field, who were pushing ivermectin, uh, various podcasters, contrarians, I'm looking at you. Well, a lot of them are now pretty much having a full meltdown because a brand new and a pretty big study on ivermectin and COVID-19 was just released over the past week. And the results of this study are not what they were hoping for. Um, We're going to be breaking down this study, the reaction to it, what's going on, what's next for ivermectin and COVID-19, which I should say up top, let me pull us up on the screen, I should say up top, for the, uh, you know, for for reasons that, uh, you know, YouTube policy and various, you know, just, just for good information. Let me just say up top that uh, ivermectin, not effective against COVID-19, according to this very big study. And joining me to discuss all of this, I should really say, coming back to the show to talk with us about this again. Dr. Eric Osgood, he is a medical director of Mission Hospitalist in Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, Dr. Osgood, thank you so much for joining me once again. Good to be back. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me back on. Now, I, I should let you know uh, that the last time you came on this show, people were very, very interested in what you had to say because... Uh, I've not let anyone know this, but between between you and me, and I guess everyone else listening, uh, your episode of this show, one of the most watched slash downloaded episodes of this show, uh, people very interested in the ivermectin uh, discourse, I guess you can say. Obviously, it was very big over the summer when people were pushing ivermectin to the point where they were taking the horse version of this, which I, I, I'm proud to say uh, people who listen to this show walked away knowing they should definitely not take the horse version of I- Ivermectin. <laughs> so people are, pe- people are still taking the horse version. Yep. You know, in, in, in you know, far right wing conspiratorial land, QAnon world, that's not surprising, but it sounds like you're telling me that it's a little bit more widespread than just even that, than even the fringes. Yeah. I wasn't expecting to start with this, but can you can you just go a little bit more about what you know about that? That's Are you like seeing patients who are, are coming to you and no yeah. way? I've had people to me and they're like, yeah, just very matter of fact. They'd be like, yeah, I got, you know, I do my, they take a little ribbon, they measure it out, they take it. There, uh, there's people doing all kinds of different uh, remedies, and that is one. That's a popular one. Are, are, uh, are, are they taking it like – because it's like a, a paste for horses, right? Because, you know, if people have ever learned anything about, you know, horses from TV, it's that in order to get, like, um, uh, Mr. Ed from the TV show to talk, they had to, like, put peanut butter in his teeth because, you know, they, they eat that stuff, and that made his mouth move. Um, it, they're taking the pace version and they're taking it orally, I assume. Yeah. Jeez. Absolutely. 
and that's very dangerous. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the rate of toxicity, I mean, it's pretty hard to overdose from ivermectin, but if you are not careful with what you're doing and you're doing veterinary formulation for a, you know, thousand something pound animal, like, yeah, you, it's not that hard to end up in the emergency room with, again, tremors, visual disturbance, dizziness, headaches, tractable nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, like that's, um, cause it's meant, that is a drug that is meant to stay out of the brain. It does not cross the blood brain barrier very well. And that's the reason it's so effective at killing invertebrates, but it's very unharmful to vertebrates. But when you take it at very high concentrations, your brain, your blood brain barrier isn't as good at keeping it out and it's a neurotoxin. So it's important to take it in the appropriate dose range because and they've done toxicology studies and surprisingly humans are actually able to tolerate pretty high dose of this drug with, with you know, pretty, pretty minimal side effects. Uh, but again, when you're when you're using a formulation that's meant for a veteran, you know, a large animal, um, it's a lot. It's much easier to way overdose yourself. One, and then uh, two. Of course, they allow for much more impurities in those formulations. You don't really know what kind of impurities you're ingesting either. And you know, you might not get an you know end organ damage. But again, ending up in the emergency room, puking all over the place, dizzy, having diarrhea. Uh, that's not uh, really fun, especially if it's not going to, going to help you in any way clinically. I don't know why you would want to put yourself at risk for that. Absolutely, I, I'm, I'm, I'm astounded. I mean, again, if you, you know, if if I was to come across ivermectin in like a QAnon Telegram channel, wouldn't be surprised. The fact that you're telling me that people are walking in to your, you know, your your practice, your your clinic in 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 New Jersey and saying, oh yeah, I take it. Seems like this is, you know, more widespread than just the fringes then. That's that's not good. Yeah, I haven't had anybody walk into my actual hospital, but like in telemedicine appointments, for example, from, you know, people in different parts of the country. Yeah. Right. Oh, I'm just right. glad it's probably I'm glad to intervene and get them to hopefully stop doing it though. Right, right. So, you know, let's 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 now start off with this. This is how I intended to start it off before you absolutely blew my mind. Uh I want people who maybe did not see your first appearance on this show. Uh, oh, no, oh, by the way, can you just move over to your left just a little bit? Because the camera. Yeah, perfect. Um, I, I want people who did not catch the first appearance, which they should go check out at doomedcast.com or at youtube.com slash Binder. But if they didn't ca- uh, check it out, I want people to understand you are in a very unique position uh, to speak directly to people who might have heard from these fringes that ivermectin is a a cure which would then have them seek out their doctor who might not want to give them the human form of ivermectin uh so then they would go and get the horse paste unfortunately at like a a, you know a store um you are in a unique position because you are a doctor who you know when people were dying from covid19 at you know it's still it's still a pandemic it's still we're still in this Lots of people are dying a day, but when even more people were dying and we knew even less about COVID, you were a doctor who was interested in experimenting with human forms of drugs that can possibly help uh, people overcome this or you know not feel the symptoms as much. And ivermectin was one of them. And you were even associated with a group that was... It still is probably one of the biggest promoters of ivermectin out there. Can you can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, I mean, so 
obviously was dealing with a lot of COVID in the hospital and was trying to get involved to the extent that I could on the outpatient side, doing like telehealth visits. And again, remember, we didn't have vaccines. We didn't know when we were going to get them, right? We were hopeful we were going to get them maybe by winter, but realistically, you know, now you're in like fall 2020. We didn't have anything FDA approved. We didn't have anything really meaningfully submitted to, to FDA. We didn't know when they'd be widely available. We were, there was a winter surge coming. Everyone was predicting it was going to be worse in the first wave. There are going to be mass deaths. And there were all these studies coming out from various parts of the world. None of them were like very high quality, high certainty type clinical you know, evidence, but just different, you know, whether they be, you know, case control to, you know, small randomized controlled trials. Some of them had some important limitations, but there are a number of them popping up. And interestingly, they were showing that people who were in ivermectin groups were actually seemingly doing better than people in placebo groups. And it was just interesting to watch. You had this sort of real cult movement around the drug saying, we know it works. No, K-N-O-W, no, it works when there was no evidence even close enough to be able to say that we know it works. But then you had people who were like really against it, like vehemently against it, which I also found kind of weird, uh, who were saying, no, the evidence is all trash. This isn't going to work. And, you know, my position was really neither one. My position was, this is definitionally low certainty evidence, meaning by definition, further inf information and better trials can very easily overturn these findings. We might find out it doesn't work. However, the reality of professional practice guidelines in medicine, especially in infectious diseases, is that most treatment guidelines are actually based on pretty low quality evidence. And as a medical field, we evolve. We try to use the best evidence that we have at the time and make risk benefit decisions. And at the time, the doses of this drug that were being used were the same doses that we've been using for years to treat things like lice, scabies, parasites, which are extremely safe doses, 0.2 milligrams per kilogram for a dose or two, very, very unlikely to cause harm. So I made a risk benefit analysis and I said, look, I would really hate to find out maybe a year from now when some phase three study comes out that in fact, these results do hold up. We could reduce, we could have reduced deaths by, I don't know, 50%. And we, you know, we stuck with inertia and maybe we let a lot of people die versus, you know what, if that evidence comes along and shows us, nope, these studies were not correct, this medicine is not working well, we can move on and maybe try to find other, you know. Um, and that, I guess, a lot of people have their hard, hard time wrapping their head around that. So, you know, you get some people who are like saying that I've like, I, I'm some kind of like traitor like it's almost like someone who leaves Scientology or something like that and getting harassed because I changed my mind but then there's still people who will bring up tweets of mine from like a year and a half ago saying oh this guy was pushing ivermectin it's like it's not that I was pushing I was again different situation lower doses are being used the evidence at the time was very different you know that Andy Andrew Hill analysis that meta-analysis that was published in uh, open form infectious diseases which is a pretty well done meta-analysis it was looking good at the time. What changed was that probably a third of the studies that were in favor of ivermectin either came out as fraudulent. Very, very serious methodological issues were raised that were not initially brought up. Some things were retracted. A couple were just straight up fraud. Um, and then we started getting better clinical trials coming out, and it just was not holding up to those trials. And so as somebody who's not an ideologue one way or another and is just trying to use the best evidence I have at the given time, I made a new assessment and said, this is probably not working. That's number one. Number two, even the proponents of the drug were acknowledging that these safe, demonstrably safe, historically used doses 
aren't working anymore and they're escalating the doses that they're giving more and more and more. And as you do that, you can't lean on that same four decades of safety that you could when you were given these normal doses. Right. Now they're giving doses that are like 20 times higher than what you would typically give for a parasite. 0.6 milligrams per kilogram when a full stomach, so it, you know, it absorbs at a higher rate for five days in a row or until recovered, meaning they'll just keep giving it day after day after day after day, which is basically approaching like the doses that you would give to like a horse. <laughs> these are very, very <laughs> Now, interestingly, the limited research that we do have at this dose shows that it probably isn't very dangerous for most people, but we don't have any phase three data, meaning we don't have real safety efficacy data, so we don't know the number needed to harm, meaning for grade three and four, meaning the more serious adverse drug events that you would get, we don't know how many people you would have to give that to to cause one instance of harm, and we don't really know if it works. And so now my assessment is different. My assessment is, okay, if you want to study and consider those higher doses, you know, again, we know that when you get up to really high concentrations, it is inhibitory of the virus, but we don't know if we can reach it with any dose that a person can tolerate. But if you want to start studying it at that higher dose, do it in a clinical trial where an institutional review board has reviewed it. It's with informed consent, this ethics overview, as opposed to just doling out doses like that when you don't really know if you're going to harm someone. So just all the calculus around the whole thing changed. And so my position modified and unfortunately, the advocates are just going now down conspiracy theory routes. Uh, it's a nefarious plot by the powers that be and Bill Gates. They're, they're purposefully designing trials to show it doesn't work, to pave the way for whatever else. Um, you know, they're citing really low quality studies, in some cases, things that have been absolutely retracted uh, to count as counter evidence to very high quality clinical trials when we're supposed to have an evidence pyramid and we're supposed to pay attention to the best studies, not cite small retrospective, you know, analysis or, you know, personal experience or frontline experience. Like frontline experience is all well and good until it does not jive with what we see in a well-designed study. We have to have enough humility to recognize we have biases. If I give someone a treatment and I see that treatment and that person get better, I'm going to have a bias in my mind to want to think that my treatment helped. That's why you have to pay attention to well-designed studies and not get so egotistic that like, no, I can't possibly be wrong. It's it's the research that's wrong. Everyone else is wrong. It's a big plot. It's a big scheme. And it's just becoming more and more unhinged and indefensible at this point. So it's just, um, you know, right. that's that's where I'm at now, which is just like, how do you how do you defend some of the some of the crazy assertions that are being made, such as this trial was designed to fail? But before, well, before before we get into that, I just want to I want I want people to understand this study. I, you know, uh, I want to get more into everything you just talked about. Um, but let's first actually talk about because this was I remember when you were on this show. Geez, I think it must be about six months ago, like half a year ago. You you were on this show, and and we you you said that you know you were waiting on the big study. You were waiting on a study. With, uh, I mean, I don't know if you gave an exact number, but a, a significant number of, of patients that would be from like a, a, a more legitimate uh, source. Uh, because, right, because when we were talking, like you just said, there were all these studies out there where like the vast majority ended up coming out being not so great or just outright fraudulent. And is, first of all, tell us about this study, uh, who's behind it, and is this study the study you've been waiting for? Like when we talked, is this the type of study you had in mind? So interestingly, uh, Matt, when you and I talked, 
the top line primary results from this study we already knew about. Oh, okay. However, now it's been peer reviewed and published in one of the best, if not the best medical journal that we have, period. So when you and I talked, the trial authors had given a presentation and stated that basically the primary endpoints, that the, the main analyses did not show a benefit. So I already knew that this study did, did not look favorable for ivermectin when you and I talked last. But now that it's peer-reviewed published, we have all the data, we have all the supplementary materials, we can look at the tables, it's been peer-reviewed. That's where we are now. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this is a phase three trial. Um, 679 subjects per arm. Um, if a drug is going to have a really significant benefit, a trial of this size should show it. Now, is it possible? Because what, what we saw in this clinical trial, if you actually look at the, um, the Bayesian credible intervals, and you look at the, uh, the relative risk, it did somewhat numerically favor the ivermectin arm over the control arm. And even, you know, very staunch critics of, of ivermectin proponents will acknowledge that, hey, and even the trial authors, when they presented the data, kind of said, hey, you know, if we kept randomizing and we made this trial even bigger, is it possible those confidence intervals could have narrowed and maybe it would center in on maybe ivermectin being 10, 11, 12 percent beneficial? Maybe. But that's a very different claim than it cuts deaths in half or it cuts deaths by 75 or it's this cure for the disease. That's two very, very different claims, right? Right. Um, the thing that we found out um, that we didn't know back when you and I talked, which is that, you know, one of the critiques that a study like this gets is that, oh, well, they started it late. You know, they enrolled people if they had been symptomatic for seven days and it only works as early treatment. If you give it right when someone gets symptomatic, what we actually learned in this trial is that in that subgroup of patients who got it really early, they actually did worse. The relative risk moved in the wrong direction. You are actually more likely to even trend toward the right direction if you were in the later subgroup versus you actually, the, the that earlier subgroup enrolled within three days of symptoms compared to placebo. The placebo arms did numerically better than the ivermectin arm, although it was not statistically significant. If, if, the, if, if the problem were the study gave it too late, you would expect that to move in the opposite direction. You would expect that in that earlier subgroup, it would at least start to trend toward the more right direction. You didn't see that. And that's now the second time we've seen that in an ivermectin trial. The iTech trial, which was conducted in Malaysia, was a 500-patient randomized controlled trial. They gave it for two more days than this uh, together trial, and they gave it with food. So it was probably even more absorbed. And in that study, um, the primary endpoint was deterioration, basically needing the hospital, needing oxygen. And in that study, uh, the, the, end, the, the uh, primary endpoint actually favored the, the control arm over the ivermectin arm. So it wasn't statistically significantly different, but numerically, the ivermectin arm in that trial actually did worse. And again, when you looked at the earlier treatment arm, it was even more so. So it moved in the wrong direction in that trial as well. Um, and some people will point out that when you look at death and mechanical ventilation, those two endpoints actually numerically favored the ivermectin group, didn't reach statistical significance. Then you have to kind of contend with, well, why did it, if, it, if it's working, why is it making you more likely to go need the hospital, but then less likely to go on a ventilator and die? We'll get into that, actually, because that's another interesting hypothesis about uh, the role of ivermectin in COVID, which no one, not a lot of people haven't talked about, which is really important. But yeah, the TOGETHER trial specifically, I would say pretty much excludes the notion that ivermectin at the current doses that have been tried that are sort of reasonable, demonstrably safe, 
are going to have a significant effect one way or another on uh, on on COVID. Um, and so, again, for the people. Yeah. So it seems like basically, you know, this study gave ivermectin to patients, like you said earlier and later, to see if there's any difference. And it seems like, you know, COVID just did what it was going to do anyway to each specific patient. Like ivermectin just had yeah. didn't do nothing. Like it, it wasn't yeah. like, um, you know, that there was, uh, you know, ivermectin uh, wasn't given correctly or was too late. It just literally was like they could have just taken a placebo because there was no difference. Yeah, very little. So the you know the authors anticipated they chose people who had risk factors to get COVID and have a bad outcome. So you know they might have been older, diabetic, whatever. And they basically, based on the existing literature, they anticipated that a placebo arm about fifteen percent will have that primary endpoint, meaning they will end up in the hospital or um, needing the emergency room ob- observation for at least six hours. And in the ivermectin arm, it was 14.7% versus in the placebo arm, I think it was 162 or 16.3%. So again, it was a slightly numerically lower percentage in ivermectin. And again, if this had been like 2,000 patients in each study, might that have been a statistical, more enough statistical power to show that, again, maybe ivermectin did make like a 10% difference? Maybe. It's possible. But uh, because the study was conducted in Brazil, we can't necessarily uh, attribute that causally to ivermectin doing anything against the virus. And we are, we are I am going to, I promise I'll explain why. Um, now, the ACTIVE-6 trial, which is being conducted in the United States, sponsored by the National Institutes of Health, NIH, pred- uh, predominantly was done at Duke University. Um, they use the same regimen, 0.4 milligrams per kilogram given for three days in a row. And this was bigger. The, uh, I think this was something like 3,000 patients in that trial. So I think something like... 1,800 got ivermectin, I think maybe 1,200 got placebo. That trial's concluded, and we'll probably find out the results of that around like May or so. I'm doubtful that it's going to show much. But um, another thing is that now that these higher doses are being used um, by some doctors, the NIH is now studying another. They've opened up a new ivermectin versus placebo trial, and they're going to give 0.6 milligrams per kilogram. Again, the normal dose that you would give for something like scabies, lice, worms, whatever, would be 0.2 milligrams per kilogram twice, day one, day three. They're going to give three times higher of a dose, and they're going to give it for six days in a row. And this is being done by you know by the NIH. So the idea that like you know, the powers that be are trying to suppress the evidence or they refuse to look at it, like that whole victim narrative. That's absurd. They're studying it in increasingly high doses. The NIH is doing it. So, you like know, currently, think, currently, yeah, yeah there's currently yeah. a sponsored trial looking at this high dose. So when I hear people claim that they're trying to suppress it or spike it or get rid of it, like, no, they're actively studying it. And you know what? Maybe at that really high dose, maybe we will see some benefit. But what I would tell somebody is if they're interested in that, you can sign up for that trial from anywhere in the United States. It's remote. Um, you can go on the app to active6.org, I think it is, and you can sign up um, and be part of the study. And, you know, anybody in the U.S. can do that. Um, but, yeah, not not for the lower, that the, the 0.4 uh, dose closed. Now it's that higher dose on and then for people who think that the TOGETHER trial was designed to fail, you have to contend with the fact that the exact same multi-platform, adaptive platform design trial was done for a drug called fluvoxamine, which is also a safe, cheap, old generic drug, and that showed benefit for fluvoxamine. So if somehow these authors had some nefarious goal to try to like make a generic not work because they're in bed with pharma or whatever else, 
why would they not also design the trial to make fluvoxamine not work? Fluvoxamine costs $10. It's completely generic. It's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor used typically to treat obsessive compulsive disorder and depression. Um, that met its primary endpoint um, in the intention to treat analysis, meaning the, the primary outcome that you look at for that trial was better than placebo for fluvoxamine. That was published in The Lancet. So these, you know, these conspiratorial things don't really hold up when you actually apply some basic facts to them. Um, and that was, a, that was a very important trial, by the way. The same authors uh, found a benefit around that drug. Um, now there's a lot of controversy over, over whether that drug should be either get an EUA or uh, be adopted into treatment guidelines for COVID-19. Currently, it's not. They're still uh, uh, waiting for some more evidence to roll in for that drug at different doses. But, you know, um, the, so again, these... Uh, a lot of the, and then again, you know, no clinical trial is perfect. There were some, you know, slight limitations to the together trial. It's it's not easy to do a multi-site trial in a country like Brazil. Things are very chaotic there. Um, you know, every single clinical trial has a limitation section, but this is a very well done clinical trial. Uh, they uh, listened to the input from you know doctors that were prescribing ivermectin on on the front lines where they were in in some countries, and they listened to those doctors and they increased the dose in the trial according to, you know, the input from those physicians. So, again, I have to keep reiterating that the narrative that, you know, from the from the pro community that somehow this was designed to fail and that they didn't want it to work and all that, it seems to me that these authors did everything they could to design a trial that would show benefit if one exists. Uh, a lot of hard work went into this trial. These guys deserve a lot of credit. Um, and, again, no trial is perfect, and there's nothing wrong with applying reasonable critique and writing letters to the editor if you have an issue with a trial. But... This is a well-designed clinical trial, and just some people don't like the outcome, which is that they uh, probably, uh, myself included, probably weren't right. That uh, we thought something was going to turn out to have more of a benefit than it did. Right, and I want to just say, being that you brought it up just there, that you know when you came on this show about six months ago, for anyone who is doubting, I mean, personally, I think the fact that you. Uh, we're looking at the benefits of ivermectin before these studies were 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 conducted, and you were someone, and we'll get into that group in a, in a bit, the uh, FLCCC, uh, and then you were affiliated with them for a bit. I think your voice is super important, and I said the same thing six months ago, in coming out and pushing back here. I mean, uh, you said to me again six months ago that when a study like the one that came out came out. And it gave you results or found results that weren't in line with your beliefs six months ago or what you were seeing six months ago, then you would have to recalibrate based on, you know, like you just said, being wrong. And, you know, that's that's what you've done. Yeah. And then there was another there was a study that was published um, from I think it was Lebanon. And uh, I found that at the time I found the study very intriguing because they gave a single dose and they compared that, I think, to placebo or standard of care. And they looked at uh, cycle threshold values, which is a way of measuring how much virus you have. And they found that people who had received ivermectin, um, their cycle thresholds went up much more than controls, which means they became non-infectious faster. Uh, well, it turned out that the primary um, correspondent on that clinical trial was refusing to release the primary data and was like demanding money. Um, it was very shady. So I ended up reaching out to that author saying, hey, can you just please send me your your your, your data table sets here so I can review them? And they sent me um, a standard SPSS worksheet that we looked at. And basically they claimed to have done, I think, like 100 and something uh, patient trial. 
And it literally was just the same 11 patients in tandem over and over again. It was just a blatantly fake data set that it would take us a, a second grader could have pointed out that it was fake. And this made its way into a medical journal. And so that, I mean, that was crazy. And then there was another trial, similar issue. So it was like a handful, maybe five trials that were basically found out to either be outright fraudulent or just in no way, shape or form could they possibly have been conducted as described in the methods. And so, you know, as the pro studies started falling away, the better quality studies with no sign of fraud or data manipulation were just not showing benefit. You have to be able to adopt your positions. If, you're, if, you're, if your main objective is human health and just wanting people to get treatment that's going to help them as opposed to your ego and wanting to be right, you're not going to like irrationally cling to ideas that are just not holding up to very clear evidences from your face. And so I don't want to speak on anyone else's motives. I can only say my motive is I want to try to help people. I don't want people to potentially miss out on getting something that's safe that might help them. Um, but you know, my own personal ego or my you know ability to be right about something, um, I don't really prioritize that, that as much as I do the well-being of, of my patients and of public health. And so if, um, if things don't stack up the way that, uh, I perceive them or, you know, maybe trials that I didn't catch some glaring problems and other people pointed them out and shared them with me, then that changes that changes the reality on the ground. I'm going to adopt my positions accordingly. And I've always said that. And the, the pro community loved it at the time when I would come out and say, hey, look, why not give it like a grade two C recommendation is better trials come along later and show there's no benefit. You know, we can always not. And at the time I was getting cheered on. And then when that actually happens, and I'm like, yeah, sorry, then it's like, you trade her. Like, it was no gauge you. How much did Pfizer pay you? Like, you know, uh, whatever. You know, they try to they create these story arcs for for people that uh, you know that they disagree with, whatever. But yeah, it's um, I've I've never really deviated from what I've always said I would do. Could you just explain to people, or I should say, remind people, because you have explained it previously in our uh, prior discussion. Why um, there was a belief or a feeling in the first place that ivermectin could do something here because, like you just mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago, you know, it's primarily a, a drug used when someone has like worms, like parasites, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What was the, the belief that ivermectin would do for a virus like COVID-19, which is not, you know, a, a parasite? Right. Um, so the antiviral properties of, the, of this drug have been studied probably since around 2012, really in a vitro model, so in cell cultures. And they found that at, at uh, high concentrations, um, uh, basically it was able, when, when they introduced it into infected cells, it was able to reduce by 5,000-fold the SARS-CoV-2 concentration, basically essentially clear out the virus 99% in about 48 hours. However, like, you know, uh, modeling studies reveal that in order to get that effect, you really would not be able to tolerate the amount of pills that you would have to take of that drug to reach those levels. But there were some questions about whether you might not be able to reach those levels in the blood, but you could potentially build up higher levels than that in the lungs. And there was potentially some contrary data from some other researchers suggesting that um, you could potentially reach uh, levels into your lung or adipose or fat tissue that potentially could exert some of that effect. And the idea, what it's believed to do, is there's a protein that when the virus gets into your cell, um, it uses this protein to almost sneak itself into your nucleus 
in that the drug ivermectin can basically keep that protein split apart so that the virus can't use it. That's like the hypothesis. But then there are a whole bunch of other properties of the drug ivermectin that aren't necessarily specific to COVID, where um, it's thought to be protective against certain sepsis molecules. It's thought to be anti-inflammatory, for example, immunomodulatory. So not so much that it was going to do anything against the virus, but it was going to somehow dampen the, the maladaptive host response to the virus and, and protect you from going into that like cytokine storm. So the thought was that even if you can't reach antiviral concentrations of the drug, it might have these other properties. Um, there's numerous proposed properties that, um, that potentially could work. And that's the reason so many clinical trialists started working with it, because they thought maybe it would. Um, so, the late, so the latest dose that's being explored now, this, you know, the, I keep referring to the 0.6 milligram per kilogram dosage. So um, that, there was a study that was published in Lancet, which is a pretty, you know, pretty reputable journal, um, where they gave this dose to a small group of people. It was a little pilot trial, and they were comparing the viral clearance, and they found that overall there was no difference between people that got nothing versus they got ivermectin. But then they actually measured uh, the blood levels of ivermectin and all the people that got it. And they just looked at the subjects that reached this minimum concentration of ivermectin in their blood. Some did, about half did, half didn't. When they looked at just the patients that reached that blood level, they actually found that the virus did clear faster in those patients. Now, what can you really glean from that study? You can't glean anything because we don't, it's not attached to any clinical outcomes and you don't know what will actually happen in a, in a real clinical trial. That same author did a really big retrospective study in South America where um, there was some benefit observed, and he published it in Frontiers in Pharmacology, uh, I think Frontiers in Pharmacology, which is another pretty reputable journal. But again, that's a retrospective study. Tons of bias, so a potential in those trials, so you don't really know if that's a true effect. So now we're, we're having a proper, prospective, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial being done in the United States, being sponsored by the NIH, and either it'll be shown to have some level of effect or it won't. Um, so that's, that's kind of the rationale behind it. The other thing that people have to understand, uh, this is actually a big problem with all the ivermectin literature and how I think people were led to some, some wrong conclusions. Um, there is a worm that's called Strongyloides stercoralis. Um, it is highly prevalent in regions like the tropics, certain parts of South America, Asia, India, Africa, and it, it's, it's, it's a worm that, in certain parts of the world, adults basically live with it. It just infects them, but it never causes them any problems. And they walk around for years, for their lives sometimes, and never even know they have it, because your immune system basically keeps it in track, keeps it in check. It lives in your gut, never really gives any problems. But if anything happens to you that causes suppression to your immune system, that worm can basically form a disseminated fatal infection that can be hard to distinguish from something like severe COVID-19. So something like getting steroids, which is the treatment for COVID. Getting steroids, if you're carrying that worm, can kill you. Getting COVID itself, which can suppress your immune system and lower your, your cell counts, what are called eosinophils, could theoretically cause that worm infection to get out of control. And so the World Health Organization actually has a page dedicated to discussing this and they talk about ivermectin in the setting of living in or coming from a strongyloides prevalent area 
if you get infected with COVID and you are at risk to end up deteriorating and eating steroids, it's actually considered very reasonable and often recommended to give a single dose of ivermectin, not because it's killing the virus, but it's because it's killing that worm, that strongyloides, uh-huh. and having a disseminated worm infection because you either got steroids or because the infection weakened your immune system. A lot of the studies that were done in ivermectin and COVID were carried out in regions with pretty significant strongyloides prevalence. And so basically what those studies were doing is they were they were assigning people to not get ivermectin versus they were assigning other people to get it. And it's theorized that it's possible that the reason there were some more deaths in the control arms is because it was COVID and they either got steroids or they were immunocompromised and, it was, and the ivermectin was working because it was preventing fatal disseminated strongyloidosis. And uh, recently, a group of researchers um, published a uh, meta-analysis and meta-aggression in JAMA, um, another really high-impact journal, when they actually analyzed uh, all the different ivermectin studies, and they looked at the regions they were carried out and how highly prevalent strongyloides was in those regions, and they found a pretty strong correlation to support that hypothesis. So that pretty much explains why it was, uh, you know, because that was the or that was the first place I heard ivermectin being used, like in countries like India. Um, it, it wasn't even it wasn't even like uh, it wasn't even a U.S. thing for like most of the 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 U.S. Uh, you know uh, miracle cures that were promoted came in that like first year or so when it was super new. And by the time ivermectin blew up last summer, like the U.S. already was getting vaccinated, so it was so surprising to me to see ivermectin get so big and you know so late in the game here. But that's because it had all that time in other countries, I guess, where basically what you just said happened: people were being treated for other things uh, while they had COVID, and it was, I guess, looking like ivermectin was helping them with a COVID-related issue when it was just no, they had to, you know, address other issues underlying, uh, you know, beyond COVID in these people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so wow. That's, in North that's... America, in North America, we don't really have a strong abilities issue. Um, but in the tropics, in parts of South America, Brazil, for example. So let's say the TOGETHER trial, uh, which, was, which is the trial we're going to discuss tonight, Let's say they uh, they randomized twice the number of subjects, and in, and in fact, that number of a relative risk of 0.9, maybe the confidence interval narrowed, and it was statistically significant, but you know maybe it reduced death by like 10%. We would have no idea if we could apply those findings to North America, because maybe the reason it worked was for what we just discussed, because that is the key difference between a place like either Brazil or Peru or some of the other places where this drug has been studied, in the U.S., but the key thing is you don't need these mega doses of it. You only need the standard amount. You don't have to be giving 0.6 milligrams per kilogram five, six days in a row to kill strongyloides. You give 12 milligram dose for most people, that, that that does it. So that was another hypothesis, sometimes referred to as the worm hypothesis, which, again, it's a hypothesis. We don't know the, the incidence uh, or how common uh, fatal disseminated strongyloidiasis is really unknown. Um, there's not a lot of great data on it. It's just that when it does happen, it's so fatal that it's taken very seriously. And that's why uh, those articles were written where they talk about, look, if you're in a place like India and you're at risk for deterioration from COVID, meaning you might end up needing systemic steroid treatment, 
2.2 milligram per kilogram dose of ivermectin is actually a pretty reasonable thing to do empirically because the screening methods for that worm are actually not great. The sensitivity is only about 50%. You'll miss cases. And so giving somebody that antihelminthic dose is actually pretty reasonable. But does that mean you're going to benefit from it if you're in the United States of America? Not necessarily. Totally different. Right. right. So that was, I think, another thing that a lot of people got wrong um, on, on both ends because, uh, you know, people are like, why would you ever give ivermectin to anybody with COVID-19 in any part of the world? It's so stupid. Well, not quite. Right. That's not quite the case. Um, and I would invite people to go look at that WHO. I'll, I'll, I can send you a link later. And there's actually an article also published in JAMA about that very topic, about what to do if you're dealing with a COVID patient who's deteriorating from a region of the globe where there's a lot of strongyloides for somebody who's never got ivermectin before. You know, you know, when should you give it to them? How many doses? What's the strategy? So that was sort of a potential confounding variable that nobody really thought of. Right. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I'm glad you you addressed that because um, that was something I was wondering, like why it was so prevalent in some countries, and uh, obviously uh, there was some sort of um, you know occurrences happening there that they were able to sort of meld into. Oh, hey, look, this is working on people with COVID, and that's how it sort of started to gain ground here. Uh, what what I want to jump into now is you know throughout you have been mentioning. Uh, the people who uh, are pro-ivermectin to treat COVID and even after this study are still pushing it. And you, you said, you know, you've been butting heads with them online recently. Um, one of the, the groups that were most forefront during this and probably the main uh, promoter of ivermectin as a COVID-19 miracle cure Um is the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. And I remember, you know, we discussed last time, you were affiliated with that group back when you said, like you said, it was an experimental drug to see what it could do for people when there was no other official options, way before vaccines and such. And you uh, left that group and it got a, a lot of, um, you know, you cut ties with them, I should say, and got a lot of uh, a press at the time because... You know, you told me, and I think this was a, 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 you know, seemed even before we knew via this study that it just didn't work at all. You know, you said that you looked at ivermectin as sort of like a, uh, you know, a, a drug to address people's symptoms. If it had any, you know, if it was able to do anything, it would do that. Whereas the FLCC was promoting it as like an anti, uh, excuse me, a vaccine alternative which sounds anti-vaxxer to me. Like they were like one of your, you pointed out to me at the time that if you looked at their website and I, I, I did, and I was, you know, I even wrote a, a piece about it, um, for, for my, you know, for my day job. Um, basically looking at their website, when the vaccine did come out, they barely, if at all mentioned it, they were still promoting ivermectin as the number one thing to do, uh, to uh, not only treat, but to not get COVID in the first place, apparently. Um, what's going on with them? Are, are they, are they, I'm assuming they're still gung-ho with this because uh, at this point, you got to assume that it's making them money somehow. Um, I mean, they definitely, it's a, it's a non-profit organization, but there's definitely a lot of donations that they, you know, rely on. And there's a very, um, ardent and uh, loyal uh, community around the group, um, and you know they, they what they have is a protocol. So they it never I guess never at any point they really say that ivermectin was like the one thing, but 
it's sort of this cocktail that they have, like take vitamin E and C and zinc and ivermectin and do that. And like, and the funny thing is that, you know, we now have pretty conclusive evidence that vitamin E also is not effective at mitigating the mitigating COVID. There, uh, another one was melatonin. There was a big paper that came out in a pretty reputable journal suggesting melatonin might itself be antiviral and help protect against uh, uh, COVID-19. Now there's been some suspicions raised with, with that paper as well. Uh, vitamin C is a complete shit show of a topic, and um, that's another maybe uh, another episode. Yeah, <laughs> that one for another episode. That that's all. But like one thing that one thing that really hit me though when I was looking at the FLCCC website, like in their their menu bar, like front and center homepage, it was like home, about, contact, ivermectin, mm-hmm. uh, right. you know, uh, another made like you know uh, blog. You know, mm-hmm. ivermectin was literally a main menu along with like the sort of tabs you would see on every single like website. Like there wasn't right. a vaccine tab. There wasn't, uh, you know, uh, a, a treatment like that tab. It was ivermectin front and center, its own full dedicated spot on the website. Right. And I, I, I basically gave an ultimatum at the time and I said, like, if this is seriously going to be a group that's going to be dedicated to using the best evidence that we have at the time to try to help people not get sick with COVID-19, how do you not have vaccines at the very forefront of your, it just doesn't make any sense. And it was made very clear to me that that was not going to happen at the very most. There'd be a little blurb, talk to your doctor about it. There's some evidence that it protects against some, that, that like very sort of mealy mouth. And it was all just nonsense about the VAERS system and all these side effects. And it was very clear that there were a lot of anti-vaccine sentiments going into that. Um, and a lot of people on the strength of that information were opting to abstain from getting a vaccine with the belief that if they took this medicine once or sometimes twice a week, they wouldn't get COVID. And um, we really haven't seen evidence to support that. And again, if you don't have a vaccine, and there's nothing you can do and you're masking and you're doing all the right things and you're taking a pretty harmless medication for the most part. Like that was something that, that I didn't really have much of a problem with. Fine. Like, but if you're actually abstaining from a demonstrably life-saving intervention in order to, you know, and, and because it's being promoted to you to do this other thing that may or may not have any benefit at all, I felt it was irresponsible. I made it very clear. I couldn't continue to be a part of that. And I very publicly said, that's enough. Um, they also have to realize that that group, I mean, the group was multiple different doctors and it did not start at that time with ivermectin. It got together at the very beginning of the pandemic. And I talked to you about this last time where they actually did, I, in my opinion, a pretty nice job early at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, doing, um, some very, very careful on the fly, very quick, rapid bedside assessment. And they centered around the fact that if you gave steroids in the hospital, and blood thinners, heparin, uh, namely in the hospital, the COVID patients, you would reduce their likelihood of death. And both of those things really did ultimately hold up to the, to the highest quality clinical trials. And at the time, the, dro- the group did get bashed because they were doing it without randomized controlled trials. And to some extent, I think that might have just been like the hot hand fallacy, like we were right about these things. So like, we're not going to be wrong about anything. Um, and a big part of why I started following the group and, and um, you know, having a lot of admiration was because working in a hospital and actually seeing for myself what a difference those two interventions made 
um, the steroids and, and the heparin, and that you know this was one particular group of doctors that really centered around and pioneered that at that approach to COVID in the hospital. I you know I had a lot of admiration, and I still I still do uh, uh, as far as that goes. But unfortunately, um, the amount of reputational investment that went into ivermectin, and now just it just keeps getting worse and worse. Now they're now they're supporting the truckers, right? That Canadian trucker convoy, the anti-map. <sighs> They start, they're starting to tweet out support for the truckers and they're starting anti-mandate rallies in Washington, D.C. Now it's like they're joining. There's like some crazy thing. I don't even know who's putting it on, but it's going to be some public tribunal and they're going to put Anthony Fauci on trial. And like you can sign up to be a grand juror and like they're going to be associated with that. Um, just totally unhinged, crazy shit. Um and if you had told me in, I don't know, um, September of 2020 that this was the direction, I would have been like, no fucking way. No. Like, this, right. that, that, that's not going to happen. Um, that, that would not have been in my bingo cards. Uh, let's put it that way. Um, and I don't know. Like, I don't know what, I don't know what happened. And I, I don't you know. Again, people say the FLCCC, we're really only talking about the two most prominent members. There's a lot of other people in that group who never really got that interested in ivermectin one way or another and really were just more involved with it during the early stages of hospital management. And um, when I talked to them privately, they were also not very happy with, you know, some of the anti-vaccine stuff, but I was the only one that up and left. So I don't, I don't really know what else to say about that. I don't know how you could stay with, I don't know how you could, how you could consider, continue to stand by that and abide by it and not, uh, and not run for the hills if you're, trying to be you know a legitimate voice in, in public health but i don't know right i have the uh i have the uh, a screenshot of that menu bar up on the uh youtube feed right now it's it's a you know it really it's th- about protocols ivermectin faq the alliance which i'm guessing is like members of the group uh public yeah. statements videos and press testimonials like one of those things is not like the other and and very much stands out because one of them is very specific in what they're promoting. It's a the only one that's a specific medication that they're they have in their you know in their menu bar. It's so bizarre. Um, who who else? Because you know I, I don't I haven't seen um there are people who were promoting how this was oh there was a really funny really funny uh, tweet I saw from like a right winger. But while I find it, I just want to mention you know there are people like um. You know, Matt Taibbi was someone who was constantly writing about ivermectin. Uh, I don't think he's written about it. He probably has the same, you know, the same. Um, he he would probably say the same thing as this person whose uh, tweet I'm gonna pull right now. Um, also, there was um, oh the Weinstein brothers had, were were big on pushing ivermectin. Who? Uh, who Brett. Brett. Oh, just Brett. Right, right. Um, is he still pushing it? Do you know? Harder than ever. Um, we, by the way, just real quick, you were talking about the testimonials. So, you know, I, I sat for an interview back then around the time when, like, you know, those early trials were coming out. It was looking promising. We were trying it out. A lot of people were trying it out in the hospitals. And, like, I was I, I was perceiving some benefit. And, I, you know, I sat and I gave an interview about, you know, my experience with the drug and why it was hopeful and, you know, promising. And, again, at that time, it was really like, let's study it better. Let's get an NIH to do a proper trial or whatever. And I did this whole segment where I talked about like different levels of evidence and how, you know, these are not necessarily high quality trials and 
this might not hold up to better clinical trial, like all the stuff I discussed with you earlier and how you, they, they edit all that out and they basically just turn it into like me doing a cheerleading video for ivermectin when I specifically asked them not to do that. I said, please don't cut all this stuff out when I'm talking about these very important nuances. And they did. They cut that all out. So it's basically just me. And those videos are still up, unfortunately, um, where it'll basically make it look like I'm up there talking about, like, yeah, you know, it works and it's great and it's curing everyone. It's um, That kind of sucks. Uh, I mean, I think it, maybe people will uh, look you up from that and find out your opinion now, and, and that'll help change some people's minds, maybe. Uh, could, well, you know. It, could uh, back, backfire on them. Oh, here's this tweet that I found uh, the other day. Uh, when this study came out, uh, a right-winger named Chase Geezer or Geyser, you know, either way is kind of funny, uh, says, uh, he, he's, he tweeted, it's irrelevant whether ivermectin works or not. The problem was the censorship. Now, when I saw this, I was like, what are you doing? What? The whole discussion, the whole debate is about whether it works or not. The reason... There was any censorship, and again, it really wasn't censored. People, you could talk about ivermectin, you had to do it in a responsible way, so you weren't getting people to go out there and start taking horse paste and hurting their body. Uh, and that was just via like specific platforms' rules. There were no like laws stopping people from doing whatever they'd like to do about ivermectin. But the whole discussion about this medicine was whether it worked or not. So if it didn't work, what what what's the argument then? What is the what is the discussion to be censored? Like what have, have you seen that 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 the, the the argument is like, oh it doesn't matter if it works or not? Yeah, I mean that I think that was Taibi's primary angle, which is which had to do with the way you know the media was covering it and whatnot. And I mean I'm not I don't know exactly what he wrote. I don't think he ever said one way or another whether he thought it, whether he believed it worked or not. But um, you know that that stuff doesn't really interest me as much. Um, I'm, I'm I'm much more interested in actually like what the outcomes are, right? And uh, making sure that people aren't harmed. Um, but yeah, no, Brett is basically Brett after that trial came out. And by the way, I mean because because he's he's someone who actually does get into the specific like he he. Because his whole thing is that he's an intellectual and he's very smart, uh, so says Brett. But um, he, you know, so he, unlike some of the other people, like we just mentioned, Taibi, who was like, "Oh, yeah, cancel culture or censorship," he actually tries to use the science and and uh, I guess maybe pervert it to sell whatever point of view he has. He's Pat, there, there's a couple of characters on Twitter that just like they're just absurd. I mean, it's it's statistical gobbledygook um, that somebody doesn't know any better seems really sophisticated, and, and I'm not going to name any names, but Brett is basically just parroting that. It's like a couple of people um, that are just it's just it's just total nonsense. Um, and again, I think he's just too reputationally invested to turn back now. I mean, there's just no possible way he's going to be able to come back and say, "Oh no, I guess not." So it's just. And I guess it's easier for the you know, for a certain community of similar beliefs to just huddle together and just la 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 drown out everything else in reality and just uh, all kind of feed off each other's energy than it is to actually acknowledge maybe we're right. And again, I want to stress: we might find out in May when the you know the active six reports this you know three thousand patient trial. Maybe there will be like a small benefit of the drug, right? I mean, it's 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 possible. That's I mean, some people are saying, oh, the together trial is the final nail in the coffin. That's 100% proof that this drug has absolutely not one iota of benefit whatsoever. 
I think that's a little over the top too. But I think the likelihood that there's like a big benefit of the drug, I think that is at this point almost impossible to, to be shown. Um, but I think even if a trial like that were to show that maybe it reduced hospitalization by like 10 to 15 percent, again, that's very different than 50 percent, 75 percent or 100 percent as Brett would claim, right? He claimed that it was 100 percent effective in preventing it. Like, So that is also like a very uh, different goalpost. And so even if, uh, you know, a trial big enough ultimately comes out showing a modest you know, benefit and again, is it because it's anti-inflammatory? It has nothing to do with what it does for the virus. Is it because it was in a South American or tropical region and it was actually killing strongyloides? Or was it done in a North American setting where it could actually be evaluated whether it does anything against uh, the virus? And if so, again, what's the likelihood there's going to be any more than a very modest benefit? I think, again, pretty low. So I just think it, there's so many other medicines that are sort of old generic repurposed drugs that maybe in a test tube killed the virus or had some hypothesis behind them that have been tried. Everything from colchicine to, you know, lipid-lowering drugs to nitazoxanide, uh, you know, flavoxamine. There's aspirin. There's all these. Like, for some reason, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin became like these. They, they just these culture war wedge issues. That it's like it's a medicine. Like why can't we just study it in a in a sensible, you know, measured fashion and just follow the evidence? Why does it have to be this? this gigantic culture war on both sides. It's been, it's been very baffling to me. Right. You know, I think, I think obviously uh, when it, you know, when, when the fringe started promoting it, uh, you know, people wanted to push back against it. And again, the fringe didn't just promote, like go to your doctor and uh, see if they'll prescribe you ivermectin in, you know, a safe to take human form. Like again, even if it didn't work, you know, uh, well, it seems like if you take a low dose, it just does nothing. Um, like the human dose does nothing. Um, but we had people literally, uh, they, they were like Trump, uh, associated right wing groups that were setting up like little side businesses selling the horse paste ivermectin or even the human form, but like not prescribed by like legitimate doctors prescribed by like the equivalent to that demon sperm doctor that like Trump was, uh, the Trump trotted out there. Um, dollars you'd fill out a question how much again stuff, how much was that it was hundreds you pay hundreds plural Jeez. of dollars you fill out a questionnaire i don't think you'd even see a doctor if you did it with not more than a minute and it would just arrive at your doorstep that was and they made millions and millions un of dollars unbelievable really unbelievable so i i see why people you know came out hard against it to try to you know because without the the you know the nuances you know it's easier to just um, but, you know, even from discussing with you, it seems like, I mean, especially at this point in the pandemic, like, are, aren't there even, I, I know you have to, to, to jump soon, too, because I don't know if people realize, but you are live from the medical, uh, from the hospital. Uh, so I appreciate you taking the time. Um, th there's got to be even better, like, it, it almost seems like maybe it might be pointless. I mean, maybe in some, you know, but then is it? I don't even know. What's, what's, the, what's the current, what are we looking at right now? Maybe that's the best way to wrap this up. What what is the the point even here? Don't is there better medicine out other than like obviously vaccination number one get vaccinated. If you're not vaccinated, what are you doing? Go get vaccinated. Um, right. But if you've got COVID and you're sick, whether you're vaccinated or not, 
Um, you know, th there's probably drugs that are better at this point that that treat people who are suffering from various illnesses related to COVID at this juncture, right? Yep, absolutely. Um, I would say, I mean, there's a drug from Pfizer that's called Paxlovid, which seems to be really good. I really think I think supplies to some extent are limited, and I think uh, if you're somebody who's at high risk for either deterioration, uh, you know, you've got comorbidities, you're older or whatever, you know, you're somebody who's immunocompromised and does not make good antibodies in response to vaccines. That's been very, very well shown to reduce hospitalization and deaths. Uh, it's effective antiviral. Merck came out with one molnipiravir that I'm not really uh, a huge uh, fan of necessarily. Um, just full disclosure, conflict of interest. I have done a little bit of consulting for Pfizer in the distant past. I made maybe like $1,600 or something like that. I think I've probably taken a couple lunches for Merck. I don't really care about any one drug company or another. I would prefer that something, something generic comes along so that we don't have to prescribe anything that's expensive. But just in the interest of full disclosure of conflicts of interest, as you always have to do when you're a doctor. Right. I just think molnipiravir, I think, is a little bit more concerning for a mutagenesis. And I just think Paxlovid is a more effective antiviral. Um, there is a drug called Evusheld, which is a monoclonal antibody that's been approved for pre-exposure prophylaxis. So almost like what ivermectin was being touted to do, like take it ahead of time so you don't get... Evusheld is actually a monoclonal antibody that was approved for that purpose. So again, if you're somebody that had a really bad side effect, um, adverse event from say your first or second vaccine dose, or you're just somebody that does not make good antibodies to vaccines, it's a monoclonal antibody that's been shown to, to basically act almost like a vaccine. It it gives you durable uh, protect, uh, protection against um, the virus, including current variants. Um, there's some uh, a little bit of um, discordant evidence around inhaled steroids, like uh, inhaled budesonide, stoic, and the principal trials in the UK at high doses show that steroid puffers actually uh, reduce uh, clinical deterioration. And then there's fluvoxamine, which maybe we could discuss that on another episode. That's a whole other topic that's really fascinating. Um, it's an antidepressant that has its really fascinating anti-inflammatory properties that pr protects you from going into cytokine storm. And the TOGETHER trial, which also did ivermectin, did a fluvoxamine trial, phase three, showed benefit. Um, and then the uh, ACTIVE-6 trial from um, NIH is looking at a lower dose of that drug. We should find out in a couple months if it's effective at the lower dose. So fluvoxamine is another one to keep an eye out for, currently under application for FDA emergency use authorization. Um, those those are kind of like the main ones. Colchicine, I don't think, works very well. Um, there's a couple other medicines like uh, metabolic interventions like that are being studied, like metformin and phenofibrate and people that are either like diabetic or obese metabolic syndrome, things like that, it might be able to protect to some degree against clinical deterioration. There's some studies coming out probably in the next few months that'll reveal whether those things are effective. So to answer your question, yeah, there's a number of potential therapeutic options that have much bigger effect sizes demonstrable than this medicine, which again, even if it has like maybe a 10, 11, 12, 13% benefit, that's a lot smaller than some of the effects of drugs that have been shown in actual high quality trials to be effective. So again, that's another change in the material condition that we're in right now. We actually have some pretty good treatments now. So I hope that answers your question. Oh, it absolutely does. More than answer my question. So uh, oh, one, one last thing, if you could just have another minute or two. Um, 
what are you know is ivermectin still the main fringe miracle cure that they're promoting or is there in the same sense that you just explained a whole bunch of uh you know good options for people that you know legitimate options for people is there something new that's come after ivermectin that the fringe is latching on or is ivermectin still their you know their main bread and butter um let me think I don't think anything's gained quite as much traction. Right. Uh, not really. There's, right. a, there's, a, oh, there's another antipsychotic drug called uh, nitazoxanide that's used to treat traveler's diarrhea, cryptosporidium. It's used, you know, uh, it's an antiprozole medication. Similar to ivermectin, it was studied in vitro and showed some pretty good um, you know, ability to inhibit the virus. Uh, I think that drug probably has a much better chance than ivermectin to end up showing some benefit. But again, it's gonna—it's being studied at a much higher dose than has ever been used before. It's currently ongoing in clinical trials. They're similar to ivermectin. There's been a few lower quality trials that have shown a little bit of benefit. Um, but I think there's been some pretty significant issues with that literature. So it wouldn't shock me if like nitazoxanide, because again, it was hydroxychloroquine, Ivermectin, those are both antiparasitic drugs. This is also an antiparasitic, so it wouldn't shock me if if that became uh, the next one. But again, similar. That's that's you know um, ongoing clinical trials are actually looking at that drug. Uh, if you take it at high doses, it makes your urine discolored and it can make the whites of your eyes get tinted. So and it can give you a pretty bad diarrhea. So I would not really recommend that to anybody until we actually have a really good clinical trial. Benefit. There were a couple others that didn't show benefit. There was one big trial that was just published that showed a pretty strong trend toward benefit, but didn't really quite hit statistical significance. So I, I kind of hope, I really hope that one doesn't become the next. Uh, I've been very similar to ivermectin. I've been tracking that drug very carefully too. The reason is because there are still parts of the world that can't afford some of these fancy, expensive new medications. It's like a two, three dollar drug. And if it does end up becoming beneficial, it would be nice to be able to deploy it to those areas. But again, I'm watching it. I'm, I'm looking at the data that comes out, um, and it very well may be shown to have zero clinical benefit whatsoever versus it might end up being beneficial. But you know, to answer your question, it wouldn't shock me if, if that became uh, the next one after, after ivermectin. Interesting. At least the, it seems like the, uh, the snake venom never took off, right? That was what... <laughs> Uh, drinking your own urine—that was a fun one. I don't know if you ever. Talked about that one. Uh, I remember that one. Oh man! And, and you know, even, I think even even the some of the people on uh, the fringe were like uh, watching some of those videos of the people who are promoting drinking your own urine. Even they were like, "Whoa, whoa! Even this this one's a step too far." <laughs> yeah. What do you think we are crazy? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, at least we, we have a new side effect. We learned a new side effect of, uh, of ivermectin from this study, and that is that uh, it now makes uh, anti-vaxxers completely melt down because they do not like the results of this study. Um, doctor... I, I don't want to overgeneralize. There are some people who are very in favor of the drug who are also, you know, very in favor of vaccines. I don't want to overgeneralize that too much, but I would say the correlation is fairly strong. Right. Dr. Eric Osgood, Medical Director of Mission Hospitalist in Trenton, New Jersey. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for especially taking the time when you're, you know, you're, you're, you're 
on the clock and taking a break. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, another fabulous episode where uh, people will walk away thinking, what in the world is going on with some people? Like, they'll get what you just said, understand everything, and then they'll question the people who just won't let this go or at least take this new information and, you know, divulge it into what they've already, you know, their pre-existing, you know, thesis, I guess. Just, you know, it's it's fascinating to see how people have latched onto this. It's just... Why? Why? But again, you you broke down everything people need to know so they could uh, hopefully not go to the store and buy horse paste or take ivermectin from one of Trump's quack doctors that will extract hundreds of dollars from them. And for that, I think that's, uh, that's good all around that people know not to do that. Thanks so much. Where can people find you online? Yeah, uh, Dr. Eric OsoGoodMD on Twitter. Uh, follow me there, and um, you know I periodically try to keep people up to date with um, you know the best information that I can, um, having to do with either the pandemic or predominantly at this point long COVID is something I'm spending a lot of time researching, uh, trying to get a, a couple of clinical trials off the ground to try to get people some hopefully some uh, relief from that awful condition. So um, if you're interested in that topic, you should definitely follow me. And uh, you know, that, that's an yeah. interesting thing because long COVID seems like an obvious for, you know, medical conspiracy theorists to latch on to because it has much longer lasting. Like people will be suffering for, to, from long COVID for, for well after, you know, the pandemic is, turns into a, you know, the next stage or whatever. But if, I feel like they haven't because they don't believe it's possible to begin with because they're so skeptical of covid in general do you know what i mean it's so so weird that dynamic you think it would but maybe maybe they will eventually move on to uh conspiracy theories related specifically to long covid and you know quack medication you know quack uh, cures and then i'll have to have you on for that too (laughs) that'll be a great conversation because i think right now there's really nothing that we have yet that's proven to work and patients are going to doctors and they're trying all different sorts of things. And I think sometimes people will be quick to label things quackery because there's not a great trial behind it. But right now, doctors out there just don't know what to do with these patients and they're just trying different things. And I think there's a difference between quackery or like, you know, being, you know, taking advantage of people versus just genuinely trying to use your brain and, and come up with things that you think might genuinely help your patients and then maybe write up a case series or something like that. I think that's an important distinction to make. Um, I think certain, you know, groups get accused of that when, in fact, they are just really trying to help. And, right. Um, oh, no, I would say uh, we're, we're still in, like, the equivalent of, like, spring 2020 when it comes to long COVID. We know, we know nothing. So I think there is a difference between, like, trying things that make sense that we just aren't sure about. And then, of course, there will be people, I'm sure, who are like, I found the miracle cure. That's who I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, Definitely. Uh, shout out to Dr. Shah. Thank you for covering me for this hour at the hospital so I could jump on here. And uh, yeah, thanks again for having me. Have a great night. Really appreciate it. Take care, buddy. Are you too, man? Bye. Bye. All right, folks. There is still much more show to go. We're going to now transition into the second half of the program. Oh, did I just, I messed the other edge mask worked good. Okay, good. We're going to now transition into the second half of the show. Everyone can continue watching. Um, but first, let me shout out patrons, uh, super chat senders, 
Twitch Prime subscribers. Mm -hmm. Loading up the patrons. Maybe while that loads up, I will mosey on over to the Twitch. Um, oh, wait, it just loaded. Okay, cool. Uh, here we go. Uh, thank you to the most recent patron subscribers. And when was that? Okay, last show was March 29th. So everyone from March 29th, let's do this. The Emo Dragon, Lauren S., Matthew R., Melisand, Johnny K., Daniel W., Jane S., uh, David R., Ify Donatello, Todd G., and Kate B. Thank you so much for becoming patrons. Once again, patreon.com slash mattbinder. To support this show, if you can, only ask for $5 a month. Again, I am now doing two full-blown shows a week when it comes to Doomed and Scam Economy. And then on top of that, I do the post shows, which really are separate shows. So four shows a week. Um, so if you can support patreon.com slash mattbinder, I'm probably going to have to really like do a membership drive soon. Uh, the first ever, like a, a, a fundraiser membership type, like subscriber run, because I, I think we're at a, a, you know, a breaking point now where, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of content and, uh, scam economy especially is, is really gaining traction. And I feel like if I don't like, I don't want to pull the trigger and, uh, you know, invest more money into, uh, getting content out there. Uh, I feel like I'd be uh, really uh, losing a good opportunity in getting a, a very large audience to come in and listen to these shows. Um, and to do that, I need uh, help because I'm a one-man band, baby. Uh, that's a, a wrestling reference, people who, who don't know. But um, uh, I'm, I'm just doing this myself, producing, booking, hosting, research, editing, publishing, the whole the whole shebang. And so to get someone to come in and like be able to make like clips to promote the show, multiple short clips from the episodes, uh, that's the main thing I'm thinking of right now because um, I feel like that would be really helpful. Uh, but we're just not at the point where I can, um, I can uh, you know, hire someone to come aboard and do that. So patreon.com slash mattbinder. If you can... Um, would really appreciate it if you can. Um, but if you cannot, no pressure, never would I do that. You know, take care of yourself, your family first. There's other ways you can support this show if you cannot afford to do so monetarily. YouTube.com slash MattBinder, subscribe there. Uh, Twitch.tv slash MattBinder, follow me there. DoomedCast.com for all the places where you can subscribe to the podcast version of this show. ScamEconomy.com for all the places where you can subscribe to the podcast version of that show. Super important, leave podcast reviews for Scam Economy and Doomed. Really helpful. Seriously, really, especially, definitely do it for Doomed too, but Scam Economy is ranking on Apple Podcasts because... Show it's a lot of like I said it's gotten a lot of attention in the recent you know it's new got a lot of attention since it's launched. Um, every review literally boosts Scam Economy and Doomed up the podcast rankings. 
I see a direct correlation in the analytics for downloads when we are higher in the rankings than when we are lower. So again, leave a review if you can. Super helpful. Um, patrons, if you haven't left a review yet, if you do, I got stickers for you for Scam Economy. Let me uh, drop out of the uh, the green screen for a second so you can see them. Um, in the patron, just uh, on the patron page, there's a post where you just leave your comment, your review, in your just comment your review in that post. Uh, and I will be reaching out probably this week, if not next, but probably later this week, uh, to get addresses to send you guys stickers. Uh, to send you guys stickers. Um, to send out the stickers. Uh, and then once all the patrons who want to take advantage of that, uh, and again, if you can't leave a review for certain reasons and you are a patron, still reach out to me. I'll get you a sticker. Uh, but leave a review if you can. Uh, but people who aren't patrons, I will open up whatever's left of the stickers after the patrons get theirs. Uh, just leave, but you guys will have to. Freebies will have to leave a review to get a sticker for free. Um, so that's that's a definite for you non-paying subscribers. Um, what else? What else? Oh, if you have Amazon Prime, you get a free Twitch Prime subscription. It is literally free money Amazon gives you each month that you get to just hand off to your favorite Twitch streamer. Hopefully, that is me. If not, I'm not going to hold it against you, but hopefully it's me. Uh, go to twitch.tv, connect your Amazon Prime account to your twitch.tv account. And when you do that, every month, and you have to redo it every month, Amazon doesn't let you automatically do it. You have to resubscribe manually every month. You can give your Twitch Prime subscription to me. It's based, It's literally scrounging into Jeff Bezos's couch pulling out the pocket change that he doesn't care about uh, and handing it over to me. It's, it's, it's a win-win. No extra cost to you if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber. Uh, lest a scam economy, just like a, a whole, seriously, like a whole bunch of people did. Let me read some of those people that did it uh, just uh, a couple days ago. Well, in the past day, it was uh, Lee B. Thank you for the Pro uh, Twitch Prime subscription. Uh, and Lena, thank you for the Twitch Prime subscription. Captain Bringdown, thank you for the Twitch Prime subscription. But then we had uh, Ponder uh, during that that Scam Economy episode. We had Ponderosophine with the subscription. Nick Swen with five community gift subscriptions, basically paying for five other people to have subscriptions. Cactus Danny, Philbo Schwagens, uh, Violard, Sir Lamontagne. He said that. Uh, yeah, Okajik, Anti-Social Communist, Swizzleberry, Nug Wrangler, Robo Monkey Cat, Loves Water, Serious Business, uh, Mobile Newman, Yusufus, Hammer Tim, uh, Light Hunter, literally all of these people just the same time, less scam economy, throwing me those Twitch Prime subs, and some people have been paying for Twitch subscriptions. Thank you so much. It it goes to me just like the the uh, you know the super chats do. And again, we just got during this episode just out of the blue. If you're watching YouTube on the YouTube live stream, you can drop a super chat, which is like a one off donation. I read all the super chat comments. MJM two with a fifty dollar super chat. 
in the form of a super sticker, which is basically just gives me like a really big like YouTube emoji, which is it was a hippo character sitting on an office chair and they transform into a like a hippo hero. That's the description that YouTube gives me to describe this sticker. Thank you so much, MJM, to a $50 super chat. Uh, really appreciate the support. Really, really do. All right, folks. Going to jump to the second half of the show where I will take calls. Um, open up Skype. Download Skype. Search Doomed Live and I will take your calls. It's a Skype to Skype call, so it costs you nothing. And you can do it via your mobile phone, via your computer. Super easy to do. It's completely free. Costs nothing. Um, Doomed Live. Search Doomed Live in Skype. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah. Scam Economy this week. Got a fantastic episode that dives into the most recent um, greenwashing is the best term that we use during the, the episode. Because uh, I've already spoken to my guest. Uh, the green, the latest greenwashing that cryptocurrency advocates, specifically Bitcoin advocates, are doing, where they're basically teaming up with Exxon to claim that Bitcoin mining is actually great for the environment. It's going to actually save save us from climate change. Uh, spoiler alert. No, it's not quite quite the opposite. But uh, we'll get into all of that this Thursday, Scam Economy. Uh, it'll be on this YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Matt Binder, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. Go to scameconomy.com for all the links to subscribe. Uh, and folks, uh, I will see... If you're not sticking around for the live stream, if you're not a patron... I will see you all next time on Doomed.